but um, I seen it and it was all I needed to see. And it's pure evil. But I want to tell you, I'm not going to tell you anything graphic about it. I'm just going to tell you the premise of it. And I want to show you where America's mindset is today. This is why when you and I go out and preach the words of life, all they know is death. This is why. Because their mind and their brain is consumed with death. It's a glorification I am state. seeing something on the screen and repulsed by it. I am sitting there dreading another needle in the eyeball. I am dreading another incision across the scalp and the peeling back of the scalp. That's dread. That is not horror, and that's not entertainment. It is dread. This is some of the Hollywood writers. It's simply appalling. The uh, night of the living dead, you know, the chainsaw massacre, this horrible stuff, the blood and gore. You, you don't want to focus on your life on that because it will haunt you. If you have horror movies and wicked movies in your home, those are gateways for Satan. Dave, did you know it's 4th of July coming up? I did. I did, actually, okay. because I have work on July 5th, so I had to, like, make plans around that, I guess. Well, listen, it's uh, it's it's Canada Day today, so I'm I'm sitting at home watching the pit on repeat in uh, in honor of our great country's 150. 150, but you still got the queen on your money, so I don't know what you're celebrating. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Welcome to episode number 60 of the Horror Explorer podcast. This is a podcast determined to turn people on to horror movies that they might have never seen or even heard of. We like to focus on VHS-era horror that most younger horror fans aren't aware of, and some of the more obscure or unusual horror that's come out since. My name's Mike, I'm your host, and I'm the one that picks these movies every week for everyone to watch. And this week with me, I have Eric. Hello. Liam. Hey, everyone. And mm Mm-hmm Dave. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, uh, has anyone done anything interesting in the last week? I watched Baby Driver. What is Baby Driver, Dave? Baby Driver is the new Edgar Wright movie. The new who? The new Edgar Wright movie. Okay. The same guy who directed The World's End, Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, and things like that. Uh, I I don't think I've ever ever heard anyone go backwards like that and say The World's End before Shaun (laughs) of the Dead. (laughs) <laughs> true, true. But I really like his style. I really like his work. He's really great at visual comedy, and his editing is always on point. And Baby Driver was fantastic in every single way. It was like a 10 out of 10 in pretty much every category, and I highly recommend it. What's it about, Dave? It's about a guy who drive. he's a getaway driver for bank heists. So it's pretty okay. much the same premise as an earlier film called Drive, except instead of being slow and pretentious like Drive, which I give a 4 out of 10, it's really fast-paced and upbeat. Well, Have you guys I, seen I, Life yet? Yeah, I've seen Life. Yeah. Alright, yeah, I don't watch a whole lot of newer horror movies, but uh, I checked that out, just because I really liked uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler, and yeah, I, you Nightcrawler know, he wasn't really on the oh, yeah. radar for me before that. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he picks really good stuff, too, for the most part. Yeah, for the most part. Uh, I don't know, I thought life, and if you don't know what life is, it's about, like, they find life on Mars, and they decide to do stuff with it on the space station so they don't have to worry about it, you know, contaminating Earth or whatever. And it's some, like, microscopic life that, you know, gets bigger and smarter, and, you know, you can imagine where it goes. 
So I figured I'd give that, you know, a watch because he's a good actor and, you know, it looked like a big budget thing. It was a pretty middling movie. And I have to be honest, really, the only reason I'll even say it was middling is because they were smart and they killed off Ryan Reynolds early in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I also saw it and I thought it was pretty bland all around. It's just a lot of stupid choices of characters and everything about the movie is really, really standard aside from a few stupid plot points, which lower the movie to be below average. Yeah, it's, it's kind of similar to the movies uh, we've been talking about in that it's, it's definitely a B-movie. It just has a higher budget. This is why I feel sorry for people that like, just watch horror that's coming out recently or stuff like that. Because to begin with, you don't get very many options, and it seems like most of it is just like uninspired and... You know, it's not transgressive, it's not super entertaining, there's not any big what-the-fuck moments in it anymore. It's just like, it's just all kind of like, bland. I don't know if I totally agree, because as, by nature of me having to do reviews, I watch a lot of newer horror. And I watched a movie this week uh, that I reviewed that was called uh, uh, The Evil Within. It's not a good movie, but it's gotten, I mean, I can't say it's a good movie, because it's not, but I think everyone should watch it. Because of the story behind the movie, the guy took 15 years to make it. He was a meth addict. He was an oil tycoon who sunk $6 million of his own money, renovated his house, built all these custom stuff, had never made a movie before, had no training, and kept bringing the actors back in and back out. And he he created this movie that, like, because uh, he had nightmares, and the nightmare parts are really effective, and some of the acting in it is is chilling. And the movie ha- is is all at once brilliant and terrible at the same time. It's really something to see. And it really reminded me of the stuff that you've been doing on this podcast. Just, it was made from 2005 to now and he died before he finished it. Wow. I I think, I think I'd rather read a book about that guy than, than see a movie he made, uh, you know, the same way some people feel about communion. That seems like a really interesting story, but is, is is that stuff, is that represented in the film? Can you kind of see the, that he struggled and really put his all into it? Oh, yes. Uh, there's a couple of shots because he built his own custom camera rigs so that he could get uh, shots in this movie. And oh, wow. the, and the actor that he had playing, uh, it's about a mentally uh, handicapped uh, young man who lives with his brother. And he starts having conversations with this evil entity in a mirror. And he spends a lot of time talking into the mirror to himself. And then the entity in the mirror is talking back as his reflection. So the acting for those moments had to be really, really good. He had to play the innocence, the sweetness of a mentally handicapped boy, plus the evil of this demon at the same time. And the same, you know, sometimes the same shot. Does this have Michael Berryman in it? It does. Yes. Okay. I know what movie you're talking about then. It looked like I might check it out. If if anything, just for Michael Berryman's sake. Wait, he's the guy from the Hills have eyes, right? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly who yeah. that is. All right, every week I make these guys watch an older or more obscure movie that most people their age might not be familiar with. Usually it's something I like, because the whole point of this podcast is to make younger horror fans aware that the best new horror movie that they see this year could be a movie from 30 years ago that they didn't even know existed. And this week, Mike made us watch Silent Rage. And I hadn't heard of this one or seen this one, but I have seen a few 80s slashers in my day. I've read Frankenstein, and I know what Chuck Norris looks like, so I could have put together a pretty good image of what this is going to be, and it, it probably would have ended up being accurate. Yeah, I've seen this once or twice before, and I this was my first time really taking an analytical look at it. 
but I've enjoyed it every time I've seen it. I uh, actually got it mixed up when you first mentioned it with a uh, hero in the terror, which I had seen, but I ended up when I was halfway through the movie, I'm like, I've never seen this before in my life. <laughs> yeah. Hero in the terror is another one where he plays a police officer dealing with a serial killer, except yeah. it's a more conventional killer. Yeah. And yeah. you know, growing up, Chuck Norris movies were a thing. He started in like the mid to late seventies making movies where, you know, he'd done like some movies where he's just like a, a supporting character or whatever. Like he was in a Bruce Lee movie, stuff like that, where he's just a karate guy. And he started doing some early like prototype action hero movies. And this is like maybe the sixth movie he made where he was a leading man. And this is the first and only movie he made that was like a horror movie. So I was more interested in this as a child than I was in the other Chuck Norris movies. Although, Back then, Pickens were slim for stuff to watch, so you'd watch a Chuck Norris movie and be happy about it. He punches and kicks people. He's got a mustache. It's good, good. And as a kid, it's pretty captivating. As you get older, you realize that pretty much all of his movies suck. This one in particular stands out to me because it's kind of just such an absurd premise. So I had seen this several times. I always try to get people to watch it just because it's like, hey, it's Chuck Norris versus Michael Myers. You know, you've got to check this out because it's kind of a one of a kind. It's, it's a unique movie. Yeah, I, I kind of forget that Chuck Norris is or was a movie star just because I'm 20, and to me, Chuck Norris has always just been famous for being Chuck Norris, kind of like Christopher Walken to me. It was just Christopher Walken, so I was excited to to see some of his chops and see what he's really got. Yeah, he's more of a meme for our generation than an actual person. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, his career has been pretty durable. I mean, he started out with the action hero thing through the 80s. And just when he started to peter out, like, towards the late 80s and early 90s, he started doing that Walker, Texas Ranger thing, and he was selling that Total Fitness gym or whatever it was. He was on infomercials every fucking night selling. And, I mean, that stretched out for quite a ways. And then the meme thing kicked in with, uh, you know, just all the Chuck Norris stuff that that you younger folks are familiar with now. So this movie is pretty basic. It's really straightforward. It's Chuck Norris versus an unstoppable superhuman killing machine whose only weakness appears to be roundhouse kicks. <laughs> yeah, right. So Chuck Norris stars as the protagonist in this movie. Unlike a lot of horror movies, this focuses a lot more on the protagonist than it does on the antagonist. So it's kind of a slasher movie, but really it's an action movie, and he takes the helm on it. There's other people in this movie, like Ron Silver's in it. He was also the bad guy in Time Cop. He plays the doctor with the beard, the one that at least has some ethics in it. Uh, and Brian Libby, who plays the killer, he went on to have like pretty substantial roles in some movies that everyone would be familiar with. Like he was in The Green Mile. I think he was like one of the one of the uh, prison guards or something. He was in The Shawshank Redemption. He might have been a prison guard in that too. I don't know. But I remember him as if you've watched The Mist, there's that big biker guy in it that gets cut in half early on. That's him. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he was also in Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, which is a pretty big fucking movie. Yeah. Finally, Stephen First is in this movie. Uh, He plays the sidekick dipshit deputy named Charlie. And he's probably best known as Flounder from the movie Animal House. But, or as I remember him, he was the principal in Twisted Sister's iconic I Want to Rock music video in the early 80s. So we'll see what these guys have to say about Silent Rage right after this. If you'd like to contact us here at the Horror Explorer Podcast, you can reach us via email at horrorexplorerpodcast at gmail.com, or you can interact with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash horrorexplorer, and you can follow us on our Twitter account, at horrorexplorer. 
All right, now we'll see what these guys thought of Silent Rage. And we'll start with mm-hmm, Dave. Okay, so this film opens on a stained glass window that's slowly growing brighter and slowly illuminating the room that's around it. So the one thing I'm surprised you didn't notice is the first thing I notice about the intro to this movie is not any of the camera work or any of the imagery. It's that the opening music when they're showing the studio logo sounds like an absolute ripoff of the theme from Halloween. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they do use aspects from Halloween quite a lot in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. For example, later on, they'll reuse the POV shot outside the house from Halloween and a POV shot inside the house of Halloween. And during the several chase scenes, they'll reuse the score. Yeah, this movie clues you in early that it's going to be recycling a lot of stuff from the past from other movies. Yeah, definitely. There are lots of explicit references to older horror films. This only came out in 1982, and Halloween was 1978. And it also references a lot of things earlier in the 70s and even from 1980. Anyway, so in this opening shot, normally in an opening to a film, we would get kind of a survey of a lot of different images that pertain to the film, or we'd follow one character through. We'd have a dynamic opening shot. Here, it's a really stationary opening shot, yet it's still interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's interesting, because I don't think I've ever seen an opening shot like that before. It's just a close-up of a stained glass window which is very strange considering that going into this, you know, this is supposed to be like a horror action movie or something like that. And it's just, it gets a little brighter, like you said, and you get the credits. And really everything that it's, that it's conveying to you does not come through the imagery. It's, it's conveyed to you through the sound. Yeah, definitely. We, we get kind of a barrage of sounds. We get an alarm clock, screaming kids, a ton of stuff running, the yelling of some woman. It's crazy. It's overwhelming almost. Yeah, when when I first saw the stained glass window and it kind of dwelled on it for a little bit longer than I thought it would, um, I thought we were in a church and I thought it was setting up a religious theme that was going to come into this movie. And I, I was thinking uh, maybe this isn't what I was expecting it to be. And maybe Chuck Norris is gonna, not going to be, you know, roundhousing Michael Myers, but instead he's going to be roundhousing Jesus. But we didn't end up getting that. But uh, it did keep me guessing for a second. I thought it was a cool shot, too. Yeah, right. yeah, not only that, this is only the first aspect of that shot, because in addition to the sounds that are natural in the film, we also get like a slowly escalating high-pitched music in the background that, like Mike already said, is really reminiscent of Halloween's theme. I also found the stained glass window, and this may say more about me than anything else, to be vaguely vaginal. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's going to look like a Georgia O'Keeffe painting. Yep. Anyway, so <laughs> that comment, I have Dave has to nothing to say about vaginal stuff. Now, if it looked penile to you, we'd still be talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what a vagina is, but I'm sure you're right, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the camera moves down, and we move to a close-up of this guy with kind of like frizzy hair as his eyes like flash open, and he's obviously very disturbed by the sound. Yep. Yeah. And as, as we mentioned with a couple other movies where it's obvious right from the get-go that the the character they're portraying is crazy right from the get-go, just like uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining and Christopher Walken in The Communion, right off the bat, three seconds in, you know, this guy's nuts just from his face. However, he does a really, really good job of portraying his gradual descent into insanity. He descends into insanity over the course of one shot. Just the opening shot, which goes on for like five minutes. It's a fantastic long take, which we'll discuss later on. 
Well, often, Dave, when you say we'll discuss stuff later on, we forget about it. So let's just talk about that long take real quick. Okay. Uh, I was really, I had never noticed that before when I watched the movie, that there is a take in this movie that involves children and two or three other characters that goes on for like, it seems like forever. I could not believe it wasn't cutting away. I was really, really impressed with that take. Not only that, there's a ton of really, really complicated blocking going on with both the camera and the characters. For example, we follow this guy, the killer. He turns out to be the killer. He's the guy we opened on through the house, and we occasionally get close-ups of his face as the camera spirals around him. And these close-ups really show his gradual, like, growing insanity, his gradual – because the noises overwhelm us the same way they overwhelm him. Yes. Yeah, because there's kids with, like, uh, like a fake toy gun that makes, like, a pew-pew-pew noise – and there's, like, TV or music or something going. The kids are screaming. You can hear them running around. I mean, if you want me to feel uncomfortable and frustrated by sound, they, that is exactly the route you go. Children playing. And that's that's what you hear. And it's very loud and very distracting and very frustrating to have to endure for this entire shot. Not only that, they work in unnerving moments into this long take. Because at one point, once the killer finally, like, gets sent over the edge, he goes outside to pick up an axe, and the camera moves to the window to see him pick up the axe. Then the camera moves back inside where there's more complicated blocking going on involving the children and the mother. And then we You know, right there real quick, when they shot out the window over the kitchen sink and out the window of him in the yard next to the wood pile, just kind of, like, dicking around with the axe while the kids were playing in the background, all I could think was, please... Please start with him taking the axe to those fucking kids. This would be so fucking perfect right now if he just starts swinging that axe at those fucking kids. Please, please kill the children. Well, I had the same thought. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to point out, because uh, like you said, I, I write down a lot of jokes. Uh, I, I noticed, or my wife for that matter noticed, that one of the kids in the background is like trash talking with one of the other kids. And at one point he's like, you ain't shit. <laughs> Actually, yeah, and then some, I think someone chides him for using that word, and then he just keeps going, shit, 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 over and over and over. I wonder if that was, wonder if that was improv or if that was in the script. <laughs> I don't know, but it was awesome. It really well. Yep. So then moving back to the unnerving moment in this scene, we move the camera moves to another window, and at this window, the kids are, like, running around playing with chickens or something. Then the mom calls them back inside till it stopped bothering the chickens or something. And then when they turn back inside, the camera stays on that window, and the killer walks out of the chicken shack with the axe, almost like a Michael Myers appearance out of nowhere from Halloween. Yeah, and he looks different, and his body language is different now. And also keep in mind, this is still the same shot, which is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I thought... um. This whole opening shot was pretty great. I thought the blocking and the diegetic sounds you guys are talking about, um, they were all used to depict the sort of mania of home life that this guy was probably um, kind of struggling with on a daily basis. And I thought it made up for uh, the wife and his um, performances in this scene. I could kind of, I felt like I could see the seams of them acting. And so I had trouble buying that he was crazy just from the emotions he was displaying, but in terms of the blocking and these sounds and these lines in the background, like Eric said, I thought that was all really well done and it seemed very natural. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, you, you can pinpoint this guy's breaking point. And he's on the phone with his doctor 
at one point. The doctor calls, and that's what wakes him up. And he's like, I'm going to lose it. I can't I can't remember what he's saying. He's just saying over and over again, saying the same phrase about how he's going to lose it. He can't keep it together. You can pinpoint that that's, like, really where his breaking point is when he goes outside and grabs that axe. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, I thought the whole thing... I'm insane with anger! <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought the whole thing was uh, was written very well. I did struggle a bit with with the the specific performance, but yeah, I thought I thought it was all planned out really, really great. Well, I was actually really surprised by this. I was admittedly a little distracted when I first started watching the movie. I ended up watching this opening three times, and uh, because I was about halfway through the opening shot before I realized that there had not been a cut. And so I watched it again so that I could really take it all in. And I like the fact that she is oblivious to anything that's going on around her because she's doing dishes. She's got these screaming kids and he's clearly in distress. He's sheened in sweat. He's shaking. He's dropping his pills all over the floor. He's not acting normal and she's not cognizant of it. And then at the the very last shot before uh, she runs up the stairs, is him standing in the foreground with the axe and his back is silhouetted and you see her look at him and then the slow realization of what is happening comes over her face. She may not have performed anything else well, but she did that perfectly and it was just chilling. Yeah, yeah this totally. movie starts out strong. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It starts out really strong. Yes. However, it quickly loses its steam when he starts attacking a door with an axe because though he's followed this woman upstairs and he's banging his axe into the door, very Jack Nicholson from The Shining, and it's a deliberate homage here. And then a guy runs up behind him. He hits the guy in the head with the axe, and the guy kind of just <laughs> grunts and falls over. <laughs> yeah, he hits him with the axe. The guy goes, ugh. Well, first the axe, when the axe hits him, it goes, womp. And then he turns, the guy turns around towards the camera and goes, ugh, and then lays on the ground with like a little bit of blood on his forehead. And that... That right there, I was like, "Wow!" So this is this is what the kills in this movie are going to be like, because this is like this is like fucking Saturday afternoon TV right here. Oh, totally. I've I've never seen anyone get murdered with an axe in real life, so maybe they do do some embarrassing things and make some embarrassing <laughs> grunts, but it it certainly didn't translate well. I, I I laughed at his his little noise and his his collapse too. And he's clearly wearing the, whore, the the gore makeup on his face when he walks into frame because you can kind of see it before he turns. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't notice that. Because you don't really see the impact or anything like that. No. There's no, there's just really no gore and there's no effects in this movie. Mm-mm. Which is fine. It's not a huge yeah. deal. It works pretty well building tension on its own with just the cinematography and sound. Maybe so, at the beginning it does, but I don't think it built any tension after this this first opening sequence where the guy loses his shit and starts axe murdering. Uh, it all falls apart as soon as Chuck Norris shows up. Well, I disagree. I think once Chuck Norris shows up, so what happens is the killer kills the woman, but not before the woman got a scream out from the window of her house. So the police are called. Chuck Norris, who plays the sheriff, shows up, and he okay. wanders through the house. So this is what I want to know. You people, the woman screams out the window once and you're calling the cops. Why didn't you call the cops with the kids running around screaming all fucking day? <laughs> you should have. It could have prevented this. I mean, I could see myself. I empathized with the character quite a lot because I could see myself if I lived in a crowded apartment with lots of kids running around like that. I could see myself losing it and then slaughtering yeah. it down. Yeah, that's, that's one thing I didn't mention is like it's kind of presenting, you know, it's trying to show you what's 
what's causing him to crack like this. Obviously, he has pre-existing problems, but it's really, it does a good job portraying his life as a white trash nightmare. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they planted a lot of, a lot of seeds that could lead you uh, to kind of ponder what it was that really brought him to this point and think about the days prior. That was neat. Well, the, the movie might do a little explaining on its own here with if, if uh, this does have subtext to it. Uh, when Chuck Norris shows up to this woman screaming out of her window at people to call for help because she's in danger, he just uh, saunters up to the door. He doesn't draw his gun. He knocks instead of going inside. He's very blasé about the entire thing. He doesn't even draw his gun until he finds a body. Yeah. And also, this is presented in a really, really strong long take that I think builds tension well. Yeah. But there's no tension. Chuck Norris doesn't have any tension on his face. He's not peeking around the corner. He's not clearing the house like a cop. He's just like some guy walking around in a Walmart. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it kind of, it mirrored the first scene for me. I think a lot of this movie, the technical aspects are um, passable, if not good. And then it's the performances and scenes like this that kind of prevented it from getting to that threshold of, of really fascinating for me. I don't know. For me, it didn't really bother me because I think everything else was working so well in this shot. So anyway, Chuck Norris runs up the stairs, has a little bit of a wrestle with the killer, and then they fall out onto the ground because the killer tries to jump out the window to escape. And then we're introduced to the fat sidekick or the fat deputy or deputy dipshit, as Mike said, who tries to shoot at the killer, but instead almost kills Chuck Norris. So this is an immediate introduction to how he kind of like gets in the way of everything. Yep, the bumbling goofball sidekick. And right off the bat, I'm like, that's just, it's such a trope. And of course, this movie ends up throwing tropes at you left and right, that it really, it it, it it sucked a lot of the quality out of that opening scene is it goes from this really well shot thing. And then it, it takes a step down to Chuck Norris, just kind of sauntering around the house. Like it's no big deal. And then it goes to this kind of like intended to be comedic sidekick introduction. And it's just like, it kept, it kept stepping down my expectations with every subsequent event. And speaking of later events, we get Chuck Norris fighting the killer and the fight is very low key and very relaxed. The fight choreography is very it's, it's It's very silent, Dave. It's a very silent rage, this scene. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because you'll notice that after that horror music disappears, there is hardly ever any more music in the background, any music cues even, in this movie, like all the way up until like the retap montage later. There's yeah. there's not there's no horror music and no music cues in this, like in a huge gap in the movie. It's really bizarre yeah absolutely i thought i thought it was an interesting choice um i've been watching horror movies or you know just uh any genre of movie in the past and uh so many times we become used to music telling us when we need to feel tense and making us feel tense and so i think um i've thought to myself what would this intense scene be like without music and so we got a taste of that in this first fight and it turns out uh, when there's not music, um, it doesn't feel very tense. Uh, and maybe that's just because there wasn't, they didn't use a lot of other diegetic sounds or anything. It was just kind of well, the sounds they, of these they, fists hitting they faces. Turn, and... They turn towards the Foley artist to fill the gap there. And I mean, there's yeah. so much Foley work in all the com- the combat. In all the fight scenes in this movie, there's so much Foley work. And it's it's very cookie-cutter Foley work. It's just the normal, you know, throwing something in a pile of dirt, oof clunk stuff like yeah. that it's yeah, and it's just there's a ton of it it's just not a very rich soundscape yeah yeah totally 
However, I would say that the horror moments that aren't accompanied by scare cues are actually very effective. No, they did a, they did a lot of effective stuff. Is is there one that happened around this time that you're thinking of, or is that a bit later? Uh, it's later, later in the film. Well, okay, there was cool. one when he's when he's sauntering around the house when he shows up, where there is a jump scare with no music cue whatsoever. When like the ironing board or whatever that is falls out of the wall in front of yeah. him, yeah. and then he just turns around and looks at it, and it's a jump scare to the audience. But to him, he's just like, huh, I need to move this out of the way. And he picks it back up. Yeah, and I think that works fine. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. I cannot believe Dave is latching onto this fucking movie like this. (laughs) I'm going to defend this movie. I like this movie a lot. Keep going, keep going. So once Chuck Norris wraps up the killer in handcuffs, he brings the killer over to the cop car. The killer breaks out of his handcuffs just by, like, snapping them behind his back. And then the killer bursts out of the car, attacks the cops, and picks up a gun. And for some reason, a bunch of people are yelling in slow motion to not shoot at this clearly (laughs) deranged killer. And the slow motion moment was really cheesy and really undermined the tension of the scene. I'm surprised you're not defending the slow motion in this, Dave. Oh, I'm not going to defend any of the slow motion choices in this. Okay, and I do want to mention before we just move past it, the start of this entire fight scene between him and Chuck Norris is they have this shot where Chuck Norris is looking around, and he's he's not, he's looking off to the side, and the killer pops up, crawls along the ground, and grabs a uh, board from a wood pile, and it's the most hilarious move I've ever I've seen a killer make in a movie because it... <laughs> Well, yeah, he, this, had, he had to take him by surprise, yeah. I guess. This killer in this movie, for a movie that's supposed to be like a take on slasher movies, and for a character it's supposed to be a take on Jason or Michael Myers or something like that, his behavior and his body language, it kind of, I mean, the guy's a tall guy, he's kind of lanky, he's a little bit uncanny looking in the face, so he could really pull off being an ominous, frightening horror villain. But, like, there's scenes in the background, like with this scene, where he kind of he's kind of scurrying and being like a coward to get over to this woodpile and pick up a, bo- a board and go after Chuck Norris that kind of undo that and take some of the power out of his performance. Yeah, I had made note of that, too, because also not only that, does he, he has a lot of weird mannerisms. Uh, he growls like an animal at certain parts. He moves around like he's doing capoeira. At some time. <laughs> I don't even understand what he was going for with this character. Well, a lot of the difficulty in this performance comes from acting against Chuck Norris, because Chuck Norris is supposed to be an unstoppable badass, and normally in slasher films, you will not have an unstoppable badass character aside from the villain. So it tends to be the final girl like defying all odds to defeat the slasher, where in this case, it's Chuck Norris versus a slasher, so both characters are unstoppable. That's probably it. That's why I was thinking when we saw Chuck Norris um, arrest the killer, you know, 10 minutes into the movie, then they have a bit of a fight that you mentioned, Dave, and then he gets put into jail. I was wondering where we were going to go. I mean, I I loved that fight and I thought it was I thought it was really fun and cool. And, um, you know, we're only 13 minutes into this movie and I am fully aroused. But I also I don't know if I can take any more because it, it exploded. I didn't I didn't know what else we were going to get, and so I was excited, but I was also kind of lost. <laughs> wow. Very sexual. Yeah. Hell, you know, we were... No, never mind. I'm not going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to say it now. I don't know. Well, I was going to make a Dave joke about... Dave wants to hear about it. 
Yeah, well, I was going to mention that, that Eric brought to my attention that the stained glass window looks like a vagina, so I've been in a mood since then, but I also, <laughs> I don't know what a vagina is, so it so it, it hasn't done anything for me. <laughs> Moving right along, Michael, uh, the killer gets shot, and he's shipped off to a hospital to be fixed, healed, whatever, and Chuck Norris goes along for the ride for some reason. Well, what's interesting is when, when after he gets shot, his doctor who had called on the phone shows up, and you're assuming he's a psychiatrist or something like that, right? You know, because it's his doctor, and he's talking about how I'm going to lose it and stuff like that. But yet, when he gets there and they're trying to save him in surgery, that same doctor's doing surgery on him. Psychiatrists don't do surgery. Yeah, well, the director spent so much time studying genetic engineering that he must have forgot to study psychiatry, right? Mike, you said something about how he... uh how the director looked into genetic engineering? Oh, yeah. He went to, like, two different – I think he went UT, UCLA, and then he talked to some professors at – actually, the, the hospital where this where all the hospital sequences are filmed in this movie is some, like, genetics or – I don't know. It's some kind of fucking research hospital in real life, and he spent a lot of time talking to them about that. And, like, zero of it made it into the movie. Like, they talk about genetics, like, once or twice. Yeah, and it's it's all very uh, pseudoscience, and yeah, they don't go too deep into it. They just kind of they talk about it's the morality of Hollywood. It. Yeah, after, yes. After I watched this and I saw that factoid, I was blown away that he did any research at all because <laughs> the the pseudoscience techno babble in this movie is on a whole nother level of bad. None of it makes sense. Okay. Anyway, so moving right along, Chuck Norris goes to get a drink of water. And a girl just walks by in the hallway and says, Chuck Norris, is that you? And Chuck Norris <laughs> wheels around and, like, spits out his water and goes, gosh, it's my long-lost love interest who I haven't seen for six years. And that's it. Yeah, and then the fat deputy's there watching. It's almost like shot from his perspective. It's shot over his shoulder as this encounter takes place. And then right off the bat, Chuck Norris looks at fat deputy dipshit, and he's like, uh, you need to go somewhere else for a minute. As soon as the deputy leaves, then the love interest slaps him across the face, and then Chuck Norris just responds by going, so, well, how have you been? <laughs> and then later on, it turns out that the girl, his love interest, is the daughter, not daughter, sorry, the sister, sister of the psychiatrist. And then the psychiatrist sends Chuck Norris home, basically, with his sister. <laughs> and the sister. Yeah, she has to give him a ride or something. Yeah, yeah, that's not the only sort of ride she's going to give him that night. <laughs> anyway, so the sister says, I hate you so much in the car. She's like, You're not going to get back in bed with me. This relationship is over. And we immediately cut to a sex scene between Chuck Norris <laughs> and her. Yeah. yeah there are some subtle attempts at humor here and there that kind of make you laugh. Yeah, I laughed a lot during this movie. I thought to myself, as soon as she said that, I'm, I, th- I, I, I swear to God, I, the next shot better be them in bed together, and it totally was. I was so happy. <laughs> I, I was kind of, I must have different tastes than you, Mike, because all the arousal that I felt in the Chuck Norris fight scene prior was kind of was kind of lost here. I was feeling like, Maybe if there was a bit more roundhouse kicks, I would have been into it. But this was a little bit too explicitly sexual for me. And apparently it was too explicitly sexual for Chuck Norris because uh, he stated that he had a lot of bad uh, feedback from his fans about this movie because of the sex scene and the, the fact that it showed titties a couple of times. So he like kind of vowed to never you know be nearly that racy in movies again. So he never had like sex scenes or nudity and stuff like that, as far as I know, in his movies after that. 
And you know how wholesome Chuck Norris has become since then, so... Does Chuck Norris have a lot of conservative fans? Yeah, he's kind of like a conservative icon. I mean, we don't really need to get into the politics of it, but he's kind of like a family values type celebrity. Okay, yeah, I was was just curious, because even though I said... It's, it's explicitly sexual, you know. It's it's nothing more than you see in in most Hollywood movies. So that's just that's yeah. It's not even it's not even Cinemax level. No. Yeah. So then Chuck Norris, after the sex scene, the girl's like, "I don't want to see you ever again." Chuck Norris is like, "Okay, whatever," and kind of drives off with the sh- deputy. They drive by a diner, and they're just sitting and eating in this diner, and a group of bikers come along. And this is my the- favorite part about this scene, Dave, is they're not sitting there eating. Deputy Dipshit is sitting there eating, and he has two identical separate plates oh, of food. Geez. Yeah, that was pain. It's yeah. the, like the, the fat guy likes to eat. That's such a the real clever, yeah, real good. Yeah, what a trope. Goes all the way back to way before whatever happened to Baby Jane, but so many movies you see the fat guy, he's got a sandwich in his hand or a turkey drumstick or some shit like that. It reminded Speak- me of Night of the Creeps, where there's that fat cop who just is always eating. Yep. Speaking of tropes, um, not only is he the fat, dummy, dipshit deputy, but his name is Charlie. And in the 80s, if you had a goofball character, his name had to be Charlie. Yeah, it's such it's like an emasculating name, like a kitty nickname like that. You know, it's very just it's everything. They overdid it with that character quite a bit. He's just totally blown away when he seen, sees titties in the scene, stuff like that. They just made him the ultimate loser. And it's one of my favorite tropes from the era because my little brother's name is Charlie. Oh, my God. My little brother's name is Charlie, too. There you go. So this is the introduction to a biker gang subplot that doesn't really do much but demonstrate the relationship between the sheriff, Chuck Norris, and his deputy, Charlie. And it seems like this that I think add to the movie a lot because there are lots of scenes, we'll get into this as the movie progresses, that feature witty banter between characters that serves no real narrative purpose aside from uh, underlying the dynamic between those characters. Yeah, well, the biker subplot, it also does later on serve to remind the audience, just in case they didn't already know, that Chuck Norris is an unstoppable roundhouse kicking machine. Yeah, that too. Well, the thing that really distracted me about a lot of the dialogue in this movie is, it, like you said, it seems to exist for no other reason than to to create these relationships but on top of that a lot of times it's very poorly written right up before they turn into the diner he's telling him a story about when he was young and he's worried about his deputy application and this incident showing up where he placed a dog in a freezer to dry it off from something it got wet makes no sense (laughs) at one point they're they're treating the killer with this serum that's going to help him heal and come back to life or whatever and the doctor's like we're treating him with 5 million units per hour. And I was like, I stopped the movie. I'm like, hold on. I got to, I got to check the math on that. The smallest, mm-hmm. the smallest measurable liquid unit in Imperial and U.S. measurements is the minimum, which is one 480th of an ounce. Uh, that works out to about 78 gallons of serum per hour at a minimum. <laughs> That's a lot of resurrection juice. I don't know how they're making it, but wow. Yeah, it's it's, it's just a ridiculous phrase, too. Like, I think I got a speeding ticket one time for driving 5 million units per hour. You know, no one ever ever says that. It's He he put it in because he didn't expect someone to research it, you know? 
<laughs> I can I guarantee you this is the first time ever in the entire history of the human species that someone has paused the Chuck Norris movie to do math. <laughs> so after this whole biker scene happens, Chuck Norris basically warns off the bikers to stop being bikers and to go on to a different town or whatever. Of course they don't, but that's something for a later time. We noticed that the killer has now gained an instant healing ability because of the 5 million units of serum that are coursing through his bloodstream. Yeah, what did you think of the effects on this where they're cutting him open and watching him heal? I thought they were fine. Like, yeah, they I thought they looked okay. Great, but they were better than anything else in the rest of the film. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And it kind of, it, it's like the first scene with the axe where you said the gore was very minimal, Mike. It's uh, here, too. They did, it wasn't exaggerated, you know. It was very simple just to show what these guys, um, what this guy's abilities were. And, you know, yeah. for what it was, I thought it was fine. It had all the gore of a paper cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. This is a very simple kind of down-to-earth, low-key movie in a lot of yep. ways. We already mentioned the minimalistic soundtrack, but also with the gore effects as well. So then Chuck Norris is kind of like lounging around after having sex with his love interest. And she says, I I don't know. This is happening too fast. Chuck Norris says, okay. Then she says something along the lines of getting mad at him for saying okay and not like fighting for her or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Chuck Norris was, uh, his advances were moving at five million units per hour and she she wanted to slow it down a bit. But it's weird because everything she says like contradicts itself right after she says it. So she says, I don't want to see you anymore. Then she's like, I want to see you more. I don't want to have sex with you. Then she has sex with him. It's really yes, it's so, some of the most accurate dialogue in the movie right there is very... Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, it was a lot... Apparently, the year after 1981, the year after The Pit was made, it was a lot less progressive in the United States because, well, I guess there were differences between Canada and here because in Canada, women were allowed to pick up forks and stuff like that by themselves. But here, women are just portrayed as completely emotionally unstable. (laughs) Yeah, right. Over the last couple of weeks, it's just reminded me uh, with last week with Communion and that awful wife character and then this this woman who is – the worst of the stereotypical women characters in movies in the eighties. She's completely useless. She's, she exists only to service a love interest in action scenes. She practically does nothing but stand there and look like she's upset or scared. I, I mean, she's, she's awful. It's just, it's a stereotype cardboard cutout character, yep. Absolutely. which really all the characters in this movie are exactly that, including Chuck Norris's character. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I still think the premise is effective, though, and the premise works well. So we move on. Chuck Norris and Fat Deputy go to a diner of some, or a bar. They notice a bunch of motorcycles outside a bar, and we get a really long fight scene between Chuck Norris and about 20 guys who come at him one yeah, I really Yeah, the- I really liked leading up to that. These are the, the bikers that he kicked out of town. And you get a lot of uh, typical stuff out of Deputy Dipshit. You know, he gives you the little little one-liner jokes and the awkward moments and stuff like that. But they're driving past the bar, and Deputy Dipshit is driving, and Chuck Norris is like, hey, turn around and go back, you know, because those bikers are there that he kicked out of town. And instead of just, like, turn around going back, Deputy Dipshit, like, does a full Dukes of Hazard, locking up the brakes, <laughs> and they're sliding for, like, fucking a solid minute and a half, you know, mm-hmm. twirling through the uh, through the road and stuff like that to get turned around. 
And I thought that was actually kind of cool because he he stepped outside of that cookie cutter character just for a minute. Yeah, and and I love when you when you say uh, Chuck Norris kicked him out of town, Mike, because you're not being figurative at all. Uh, at one point, Chuck Norris he literally says, "Hey, you bikers, get out of town!" And so you know, it's a gr- great setup for for this uh, scene we're about to see here. And I really like the fact that he whipped the shit out of 30 dudes, and mostly because they employed the classic, let's all run it in one at a time offense. Yep. Not only that, they often jumped at him, and then he just picked them up in midair and threw them out the window. Yeah. This is, this is something you're never going to hear me say, when we, and you haven't heard. You know, This is like the 60th movie. You've never heard me say the fight choreography in this movie is actually pretty good. But this, in this, particularly in this scene, the fight choreography is very well done. It's not something you typically see in a horror movie. It's definitely an action movie level of fight choreography. And for the times, you know, 1982, the complexity and the amount of stunts in this movie were like above and beyond what people would normally bother to do for a movie. And it really does show because this fight scene, even though it's, it's, again, it's like, oh, you're sliding across the bar room or you're sliding across the bar. <laughs> Never seen that before. And oh, here I come with the pool stick. <laughs> Never seen that before. Even though it's just, it's just fucking, it's just a reused, recycled bunch of little incidents. Uh, it's still very well done. It's technically well done. And the cinematography during it is pretty good too. However, I would say this scene is pretty self-indulgent because mm-hmm. it's just to show off Chuck Norris's fighting ability, and it doesn't really serve any purpose aside from showing that Chuck Norris is a badass. So it's not the most effective scene in the film. You've got a movie where it's Chuck fucking Norris versus what is essentially Michael Myers or something like that, an unstoppable killing machine. They have to do something to build up Chuck Norris other than having him fuck a chick that he used to go out with six years ago. And this is it. He wipes out a whole bar full of, like, you know, a dozen bikers or something like that. And, I mean, it is essential, and it does serve a purpose. You have to have that in a movie to establish that he's a really good, you know, brawler. He can really fight. He's a force to be reckoned with. Because yeah. up until that point, all he's really done is talk, and he's had one fight scene with the guy before he's superhuman, where he yeah. doesn't perform that well. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I'll concede that. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Chalkboard. Put the mark <laughs> on it. Yeah. Anyway, right. so then he, after beating up all these guys, his love interest shows up at his house and wants to start all over because she's decided she doesn't want to leave him after all. And then we have a love montage where we get a lot of like softcore porn music playing over breakfast in bed and them kind of like lounging together shirtless and stuff along those lines. Yeah. The, 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 the rage in this movie is pretty silent, but uh Chuck Norris's libido definitely isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a lot of shirtless scenes for Chuck. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm not complaining. <laughs> Anyway, so we move over to the psychiatrist's house. And at this point, the killer has been resurrected by a bunch of mad scientists and been given the invincibility serum. So his wounds instantly heal, much like Wolverine nowadays. And we get a really long take of the psychiatrist's wife painting a literal bullseye as uh, our abstract art piece. So all you can think about is, wow, I can't wait for them to get killed. because She's painting a bullseye. It doesn't look like a bullseye to me. I mean, bullseyes are like red in the middle and stuff. It looks like kind of like a fried egg that has gone bad or something. I couldn't figure out what the fuck it was supposed to be. It just looked like a ball inside of another ball. He says to her, you look like you've been working on that all day. And I'm like, yeah, she's been slapping yellow paint on this all day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if if that's what she does after taking all day, I'd hate to see some of her sketches. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I made a circle. 
<laughs> yeah. So this is another example of kind of banter between two characters to establish their dynamic. We get banter between the psychiatrist and his wife as they talk about how much they love each other. And that's pretty much it. Now, the wife is pretty disposable at this point, but to be fair, Ron Silver's character, the psychiatrist, Dr. Tom something or other, I can't remember his name, uh, there's kind of like an ethics dispute between him and the other doctors about they're testing this this super serum that makes people like superhuman on someone who's mentally unfit to be superhuman. And there's a lot of back and forth about the ethics of that, where he is the champion of doing the right thing, which is letting the motherfucker die. And the other doctors want to keep experimenting on him and pumping him up and making him more powerful and stuff like that. So his character, I mean, I'd say out of everyone in this movie, he does the best job acting. And some of the best acting in this movie is in those conversations where they're arguing about the ethics of what they're doing. But the wife character, I mean, they introduce her and they show this dynamic between the two of them so that she can just immediately be killed after he gets killed. Yeah, we get a lot of voyeur shots outside the house. Exactly the same type of shot as in the opening of Halloween, where yes. killer approaches the house. It's to a T. Somebody goes into a room, turns on a light, then turns off a light while undressed or dressing. And then later on, the killer goes inside the house, and we get a POV of him picking up a knife in exactly the same way as Michael Myers opens the drawer to pick get out a knife in the opening shot of Halloween. And at this point, he's now wearing a fucking union suit, just like Michael Myers, an institutional union suit. It's like, could you be any more obvious? And then if you look at his haircut, it's like, it kind of looks like the Captain Kirk mask haircut thing. You know, it, he looks really similar. So the psychiatrist gets killed by the killer, who is now imitating Michael Myers. And then the psychiatrist's wife comes home with pizza. She gets killed in kind of a sped-up wall hit because the killer approaches her, grabs her face, and slams her in the wall while the camera is sped up. And that's actually a kind of interesting shot. I like that quite a bit. Yeah, it's a shame that, but still, it's just such an uninteresting kill. You know, we don't even, you don't even really see how he kills the psychiatrist guy. It's just they're tussling around on the floor, and then she finds him dead when she comes back from getting pizza. And he, the, the shot of him slamming her into the wall is cool. I think they're just doing it to make it look like it had more impact than it actually did, because I'm sure they were trying to be gentle and not actually yeah. cave her head in. But it's just, it's just these kills, you know, it's just like strangling, stabbed. You know, barely hit with an axe. And uh, this one's like I bounced her head off a, off, a, off a wall. Now, I don't know if you've ever punched a wall and put a hole in it before, but if you slam your head into a wall hard enough to kill yourself, you're also going to kill the wall. I've never yeah, tried that. I think um, this movie borrows so much from other horror movies and action movies and stuff, but the one thing it didn't seem to borrow was the extravagant kills. Um, you're right, yeah. this death was super... It was very immediate and jarring, and uh, I, you know, I thought I thought it was maybe effective just because I was so used to the movie being pretty formulaic at this point. But yeah, it was kind of uh, it was just it happened and then and then it was gone, and so um, you kind of forget that it happens. It doesn't stay with you. Yeah. And I'd- also, I think that these kills, these uh, grounded kills, kind of ground the movie. This movie, it's a movie with Chuck Norris, so it's obviously going to be a little bit theatrical. But I think keeping a lot of the fights tame and a lot of the kills tame actually adds to the film. And uh, I'd really like to give a shout-out to Ron Silver here. I mean, because in the 80s, if you needed a vaguely neurotic, marvelously bearded voice of reason, this was your guy. And I agree with... 
I agree with Mike that he did a, a really good job, better than anyone else in this movie act, acting. And he didn't get a death scene proper, but he's he's hung up on a door. And I got to give him credit. He was working his ass off because he made the greatest corpse I've seen in a long time in a horror <laughs> movie. Yeah, he did look a lot like a, an actual dead body, except for the part where his eyes were moving. Yeah, you can tell like when she opens and closes the door. When she opens and closes the door with him on it, his eyes are fixated on something off in the distance. And when the door moves, his eyes kind of move to keep it in his gaze. Yeah, yeah, it's... yeah. I, I really, I really enjoyed his character. I thought, um, I, I was more invested in his scenes than I was any scenes with a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, police officer Chuck Norris. I thought his performance was good, and I he would have made a good protagonist. Um, the scenes well, that centered absent... him were cool. Yeah, absent Chuck Norris, he would have been Dr. Loomis. And th- yeah. then he just got oh, yeah. fucking Halloween all over again. Yeah. 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 Yep. I didn't even notice the comparison possible there because he's a psychiatrist just like Dr. Loomis. Mm hmm. Anyway, so Chuck Norris bursts into the house with his girlfriend. The girlfriend technically goes in first to get spooked by the dead bodies, much like the protagonist. I forget the name of the final girl in Halloween, but she runs up to the bedroom and finds the dead bodies of her friends, then runs away out of the house and the girlfriend... Just as Chuck Norris shows up to pick her up. Yeah, exactly. And then they drive off to the hospital and of course the killer has also made his way back to the hospital and at this point the scientists realize that this guy's going out and killing people so they decide it's time to put her down. Yeah, and you you got to keep in mind they they don't come to that decision uh you know immediately. There is the this one doctor that's a little more mad than the others, and he makes the point that we're scientists, not moralists. And I thought that discussion uh it was it was it was cool. I like that they they took a bit of time on that instead of um just kind of moving the plot along and getting to the beats. I like that they the script took the time a little bit there. Yeah, definitely. So then the killer kills the scientists. And after one of the scientists kind of approaches him and says, you're my life's work, he kind of gives him a Blade Runner hug. And then, much like yeah. Blade Runner, the creation kills the creator. Yeah, so so Blade Runner ripped off this movie is what we're, what we're getting at here. Well, Blade Runner and this movie both came out in 1982. So oh, yeah? I'm not sure which one ripped off which one. Oh, cool. So... Then the fat deputy is in the hospital with the woman, the love interest, because he's trying to find her a sedative to kind of calm her down after witnessing her sister-in-law and her brother being killed. So, And, of course, it's the same hospital that the, the experiments were done on the guy at. So that's where he went back to when he was done killing. And well, so they're all in the same building now. It's the only well, hospital in town. It's a small town. Yeah. Well, I, the, I got, the only hospital is a super scientific research hospital. I got the impression that he came back because uh, he was hurt. He got shot by Ron Silver's character a couple of times at the house, and he was bleeding out, so he came back to the hospital. They don't explain it, but I also think that his lack of 5 million units per hour is causing his regeneration to regress because uh, he. I think I thought he come, came back to be treated. And, uh, oh, and this, this, this serum is amazing because not only does he regenerate tissue, but he regenerates his own uh, outfit because the outfit now has no blood on it and no bullet holes whatsoever. It's amazing. And they, could market it, they could market it as, so, as something that you sell in the grocery store when you, like, rip your pants or something like that. It's like yeah. units. It's a lot. Rick and Morty <laughs> level Yeah. Anyway, so meanwhile, the killer 
while the fat deputy is tending to the woman and kind of creepily watching her while she sleeps, the killer walks down the halls and kills people just who happen to be walking around the halls. He approaches people and just snaps their neck or does something to them. Occasionally, they'll just be dead on the floor. At that, that point, I mean, obviously, you know, I did not enjoy this movie as much as you guys did, but at that point when, like, the one the one kill where he just grabs the guy's head and snaps his neck, that was that was earlier when you were talking about how the creation kills the creator or whatever, when him and the doctor are together, and, like, the doctor's holding his face, then he holds the doctor's face, and it's just like, snap, and that's over. Those kind of kills piss me off more than anything else in the world, are neck-snapping kills and strangling kills. And they just like snap, and then that's it. It's like there's no. I mean, he's he's killing the doctor that created him. They should be putting effort into that. They should make it more dramatic, at least. Yeah, that doctor deserved a death that was better than the one he got. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think the filmmakers might have had the idea that less is more. Um, you know, when we think about these fight scenes with no music, and then we're thinking about these deaths that just come and go. So um, so immediately they might have been trying to go for. Uh, dramatics without all the frills, and um, you're right, it is kind of hit or miss. Yeah, and this killing spree at the hospital is kind of long, but in my opinion, it doesn't really feel padded out. It's definitely slower than the rest of the film, but it doesn't feel like filler. See, to me, it feels like it's pacing issues once we get to the hospital. Even before we get to the hospital, it feels like pacing issues to me. It just seems like it gets very slow. And I'm kind of out of the movie a little bit up until he confronts Deputy Dipshit. So what happens is the killer approaches the fat deputy, grabs the fat deputy, and then snaps his back. The fat deputy's got the girl with him. He's trying to protect her, and they hear all this commotion out in the halls while the killer's killing someone out there. And he goes out there with his gun, like, just kind of pointed at him, and he tells him to stop, and then he walks towards him, pushing the gun towards his chest as though it's a knife or something like that that will hurt him by touching him. And he gets, like, inches from him with the gun, and, of course, the guy takes his fucking gun away. Yeah, I I wondered why he did that, and my wife, who was sitting behind me, goes, oh, maybe he's going to put cuffs on him. I'm like, not this guy. No, he was just dumb. (laughs) And we we know that cuffs don't stop this guy anyway, even when he's not genetically engineered, right? What was that? I thought there was I thought there might be um a uh, a plot beat that explained that um that this killer had been genetically altered even prior to the movie, and that's why he was breaking, and that's why he was able to kick through a a, a door they of a car the door right off the fucking car. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so it was almost it was like um they gave us that big fight at the beginning of the film and it was almost like that that was like taken from plans that they had for the end of the film and they decided they just needed to throw a bit in the beginning because that guy was you know he was he was jacked he was doing some stuff yeah anyway so chuck norris gets back to the hospital after getting kind of a police warning about killings at the hospital and he goes to the hospital and then he goes up the stairs finds fat deputy that deputy has a really cheesy last words scene with mm-hmm. Chuck Norris and basically says, I'm sorry, he hurt me, and then he dies. Well, when Chuck Norris comes into the scene, uh, the first person he goes to, he looks at Charlie, and then he runs over to this other guy that is uh, laying on the ground dead. He checks him for signs of life, and he turns around to go back to Charlie, and it, when he does, the guy blinks. Oh, really? <laughs> it was great. I didn't notice that. Yeah, I guess Chuck Norris didn't notice either. He's not very good at checking if people are dead. <laughs> No. 
so then Chuck Norris hears the screams of his love interest echoing through the hallway. We get a bit of a stock and chase scene between the killer and the love interest. But don't worry, Chuck Norris will save the day. And he fires off his whole clip into the killer and defenestrates him. He gets shot through a window and falls on the ground, just like Michael Myers. Not yep. only that, but I actually went and compared side by side the shots of the body. <laughs> and they're posed almost identically. As Oh, my uh, God. It's, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, God, these people are not subtle. <laughs> yeah, if it and if it had felt like an homage, that would have been one thing. But yeah, at, at this point in this movie, it just it just feels like a like a crib. I feel like it was a very deliberate reference and not a steal because it's so clearly in the same style that I, I could say that the music is more of a ripoff, but the style of the shots actually I wouldn't say is a ripoff. Yeah, they are not paying an homage. This is not a tribute. They aren't trying to. You know, there ain't no wink, wink, nudge, nudge here. It's like, goddamn, Chuck Norris has been punching and kicking people for like eight years. We're running out of shit to put him up against. Like, he took out a whole town when he was a karate kicking trucker, you know, and he's done this special forces stuff and karate kicked the Viet Cong. What, what are we going to do now? It's like 1982. What the fuck is popular? Oh, I know. Michael fucking Myers. Invincible Superman killer, Michael fucking Myers. Let's put him up against Chuck Norris. And they're like, well, we're not going to get the rights for this motherfucker, so what are we going to do? <laughs> well, we'll just fucking steal a bunch of scenes from it, make him look like him, put him in the same fucking union suit, and just do the exact same fucking thing, make a little bit of a different backstory, and then have Chuck Norris fucking karate kick Michael Myers. That's all it is. There's not, there's nothing, it's just nothing more than a ripoff, a cash grab, a fucking gimmick, a bandwagon. That's all it is. In my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) So then the girlfriend and Chuck Norris have a little bit of a fight scene with the killer. They chase the killer down in a car. The killer jumps on top of the car. They jump out of the car. The car crashes. It explodes. The killer is set on fire. And then he chases after them. All right, well... The, my favorite single shot of the movie, and I really did enjoy it, was uh, he catches on fire, he jumps into the water, and of course they creep over to the little lake to see if he's there. And he comes up out of the water, and I really liked the way it looked. It was really creepy. It's a reference to Apocalypse Now, actually, the yeah. same way. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, I, I never would have guessed that this movie is referencing another cool. Yeah, yeah, because the same way that the main character in Apocalypse Now kind of rises out of the water is the same way that this killer is rising up through the water. It's not surprising to me that the coolest shot in the movie came from another film. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And it doesn't, so, it doesn't really end there either, because this is you've pretty much gotten to the end of the movie now. There's one more confrontation between Chuck Norris and the killer at the end of the movie, which involves a lot of karate kicks and a lot of, like, shots of, like, say, you know how you watch a movie and they show an explosion, but then they give you, like, four different angles of the same explosion? They do the same fucking thing with Chuck Norris's kicks. Like, you'll get the same kick three different times from three different angles, stuff like that. And in slow motion. Yeah, a lot of unnecessary slow motion mixed in there. And, again, the choreography's good, but it's just, it's uninspired. It's it's a very weak, I'm going to kick you once or twice, you're going to throw me on the ground, I'll kick you a few more times. Uh, he tries to drag him over to a well and throw him in a well. And this was, like, just the most pathetic 
sequence in the whole movie as far as fights go because they're just kind of holding each other by their shirts, rolling around next to a well. And it's like, it's Chuck Norris and a superhuman, you know, psycho killer, and they're just kind of like rolling around like kids in a playground fight. Well, see, this fight annoyed me uh, because of, like you said, it goes on forever. I think the reason that they did it that way was because he regenerates and he is going to have to take a hell of a beating. But again, the dork in me, all I can hear in my head is this is completely implausible because if we believe that he uh, heals uh, wounds like the cuts early in the movie in seconds, then this fight would Chuck Norris would never win this fight because the guy would never be able to be knocked out. The punches and kicks would not phase him. He could beat this crazy asshole for hours and never ever hurt him. But he right. he does, and there's like a cut on his face that when he comes up out of the water, whatever that doesn't heal. Now, if this is due to the fact that the serum isn't affecting him anymore, I'd like for them to have said that, but they didn't. Yeah. So I have to. I have to take them on the evidence that's already there. And all I'm sitting here going is like, this is ridiculous because Chuck Norris could never win this fight. Yes. Yeah. I would have, I would have liked if um, the movie hadn't seemed so afraid to depict the legend that is Chuck Norris as anything other than supremely powerful. Um, We see him dominate the dude in the first scene of the movie. And now here, there's a bit of a tussle, but we still, it never felt like there was any danger. You know, we always, exactly. we're, we're, we're kind of confident that Chuck Norris is eventually going to get a hang of him. And you think that in a lot of movies, you think that the protagonist is going to uh, eventually overcome the villain. But there was never even a scene of Chuck Norris being beaten down or anything, you know, and I, and I wish it hadn't been that way. That's actually not true. He does get his ass kicked at the biker bar because she sucker punches him and the, the, the biker chick with a uh, mug and they beat him up a little bit before he kicks the shit out. Yeah, he does get knocked down a couple times. Okay, like, cool. He does take yeah. a couple shots. Yeah, I, I guess I guess I just wish that those um, those beats had been a little more dramatic. I agree. Yeah. So Chuck Norris doesn't like beat him to death or knock him unconscious or kill him. He just picks him up like in a fireman carry takedown and tosses him into a well. And then... Chuck Norris has this little bit of dialogue with the girl. She's like, is it all over? Is it all over? And he's like, it's over now. It's over. And then she's like, okay. And they're like, yeah, it's over. And then you get the camera kind of works its way down the well. And then at the end, the guy comes shooting out of the water and it freeze frames on him. Just like fucking Friday the 13th. Yeah. Another middle finger to the whole slasher genre right there. Yeah. And it's the most unsurprising thing ever. It's cliche. <laughs> I mean, it's exactly what you would expect. Also, I'm not sure why Chuck Norris would have any reason to believe it's over just by putting this guy in a well, because we've already seen that this guy's invincible. He could climb out of the well, probably. Well, yeah, two, but that's where the movie ends. Well, two other things. Number one, uh, that last shot of him popping up out of the well, it was so blurry. Like, you couldn't get a better freeze yep. frame than that. And number two, I don't know much about wells, so maybe I'm just not I'm not, I'm not knowing <laughs> the facts here, but they're next to a pond. Why is there a well right next to a pond? That's a great point. Uh, the well is next to a pond for Chuck Norris to F you someone into the well. Eric, it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. All right. So Dave, why don't you, we're going to have to be kind of brief because we're going long. Why don't you let us know what you thought about the movie in general and give us a rating. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've talked a lot about the negatives of this film, but I'd like to dwell a bit on the positives of this film. So we what? Who are you? (laughs) Yeah. So we get a lot of really, really nice cinematography throughout this film. All the lighting is very, very competent. The most competent lighting out of anything we've seen in a long time, I think. 
it really uh, establishes the tone well, even though the performances and writing may not do that. I think the lighting and cinematography and even the dry and pretty sparse soundscape work really well to establish tone and to give a sense of tension and suspense in many scenes. And the long takes really drag out that tension. However, it does have a lot of issues, like you guys have mentioned. It, the Foley work is pretty much the only thing keeping the fight scenes in this world. There's no other diegetic sound whatsoever and no non-diegetic sound either, which makes the sounds very, very dry and very uninteresting. But I think that was a deliberate choice by the filmmakers in keeping it really grounded. But another note I would like to address is that the movie references a lot of other movies, and normally that could be seen as a negative, but I think here it works fine. I had no real issue with it referencing so many other movies. And, of course, it's a little overindulgent at times with its use of Chuck Norris, but overall I think the fight scenes work their way into the movie fine. So six plus out of ten for me. All right, Liam, what did you think of this movie? Yeah, so um, we've talked about how it takes from a lot of movies and how it's very, um, I guess, predictable in its execution. It's a very typical movie, um, and it's junk food, definitely. Um, but I would say, you know, it's not flat. There's there's a bit going on there. If Creepazoids was something like a, uh, like a clean-cut potato chip that's a flavor that you don't particularly like, I thought that this would have been like more more like a snack mix or something. There, there's there's elements pulled from other movies, you know. But the, I thought they all worked pretty well together. And also there there was stuff going on there, like the cinematography and the lighting, which I thought was great. The blocking, um, it was really just the performances that I had a problem with. Um, other than that, you know, it was very standard. But sometimes I, I just like to indulge in a bag of snack mix or something, and so. Uh, as far as that goes, I, I would give this a 5.5, um, but that's not to say you shouldn't check it out. You know, that that's that's a little bit above average for me. I, th- I think the movie, I think its heart was in the right place, even though it was sort of cashing in on the stuff that was popular at the time. I, I feel like the filmmakers did put a bit of time into these things, as shown by something like the opening scene. And um, yeah, so, you know, 5.5. I thought it was fun. All right, cool. And finally, Eric, what do you think? I think Liam's right. This is a film that does wear many hats. It is at once an action film, a slasher film, a mad science film. Uh, It's not a particularly good example of any of those genres, but it isn't quite the mess that you'd expect it to be either. Uh, I was surprised to find myself enjoying it much more than I thought I would. Uh, I don't think it's the best movie out there, obviously, but it is unique in the blending of genres. So I think it's worth seeing. Uh, The only glaring negatives I found were the cliched and weak characters and the downright idiotic science that they use throughout. Uh, Some of those scenes were just laughably bad. Uh, As Liam mentioned earlier, director Michael Miller did extensive research on genetic engineering and regeneration with doctors at both UCLA and the Wadley Institute in Texas. And absolutely none of that research is reflected in this film. However, I'd still give it a 6 out of 10 with one full point added for the several gratuitous but always welcome nude scenes. Uh, I'd I'd recommend it for anyone who likes 80s cheese and or exploitation cinema. All right, cool. You dirty guy, Derek. (laughs) We we know what will appeal to you. You'll (laughs) definitely like Night of the Demon when you get to look at that. So this movie right here, I I know I've not been very friendly to it throughout the podcast, 
But uh, I was kind of more focused on the negative than anything else. This movie does not sit firmly as an action movie or as a horror movie. If you're going to make a horror movie, you have to have tension built. You have to have creative kills. And you have to have decent gore and decent special effects. It lacks all of those things. So it doesn't really work as a horror movie. As an action movie, you have to have good pacing. And this movie, I felt the pacing in it when it was trying to be an action movie was downright terrible. Now, maybe the fight choreography is better than a lot of action movies, especially older ones like this. Uh, it's not enough to bring it back. The pacing just isn't good enough for it to pass as an action movie. So... You've got all these characters that don't quite work. The guy playing the killer doesn't really know how to play a killer. He's running. He's hiding. He's sneaking. He's, he's like crouching to avoid being seen and stuff like that. Doesn't really come off as someone who's invincible, even though that's what he's supposed to be. And that really screws it up because he's a big guy and they did a good job with the casting as far as looks go for a psycho killer. Uh, that could have worked, but he just didn't play it right. The deputy dipshit character just falls flat. It doesn't really work. It doesn't endear you to him. It's not a very likable character. So that didn't work out very well. Chuck Norris, he's a performer, not an actor. And he performs as, you know, someone who punches and karate kicks people and has a mustache. That's his whole shtick. And he's not really much of an actor. So there's really no characters there to help me care about what's going on and overlook the pacing issues and the lack of the eye candy that you would expect from a horror movie. Uh, it is unique. It is kind of a one-of-a-kind movie, and that makes it worth watching, and it has its moments. And if you can watch this with other people, it's even more fun. But in the end, what you have is like a floundering old-school slasher that happens to have Chuck Norris in it, and that really detracts from the fact that it's a slasher, and the fact that it's a slasher detracts from Chuck Norris. So... Despite feeling different and unique, it doesn't really break any new ground or excel at anything at all. So it's it's a little bit better than middling movie just because it's kind of unique. So I give it about a 5.5 out of 10. I would recommend anybody check it out just for the entertainment value. I mean, that's why I brought it here today for you guys to check out. Cool. Yeah, those are all really good points. I think um, the thing you said at the end there about how it detracts from Chuck Norris and Chuck Norris detracts from the film is kind of... Uh, it's funny in it in its uh, contradictory sense, but I think you really nailed it. Yeah, I wish it kind of went all in in some of these aspects totally. I'm surprised that was the most positive review of this film. Yeah, yeah I look am at too. that. It must it must have really got you somehow. I really enjoyed this film. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking well, that first scene got you aroused too, Dave. <laughs> so if you guys remember last week or the week before, I told you that you know Twitter's kind of getting out of control, and I'm not really paying attention to it anymore. Because I can't keep track of what's going on. There's so many people following us. I'm not following everyone that's following us. There's so much like spam and stuff mixed in there. I don't know what's going on. So, of course, that inspired two people to actually tweet at us for the first time in forever. So, first, King Spook, he said, Horror Explorer, great podcast, but you guys are mean to David. <laughs> you guys have any feedback on that? I don't think we're mean to David. You got to keep him in check. That's what it's all about. <laughs> You guys don't know what it's like when David is totally unrestrained. He's a total diva, huh? Yeah, it's just, it'd be a four-hour podcast about lighting and Kubrick, and nobody wants to hear that, right, Dave? Yeah, nobody wants to hear that. Oh, you're a yeah. Kubrick fan, huh? Missy Mayhem also sent us a message on Twitter, or she tweeted at us, or however the fuck it works, I'm still not clear on it. And she said, in regards to The Pit, which we watched a couple weeks ago, she said, I found out about this movie when I downloaded an ebook dump. I think it is a great B-movie find, and I bought the Blu-ray. 
So I'm kind of surprised that someone bought the Blu-ray of this movie, to be honest. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm surprised that it even made it to Blu-ray, let alone DVD. That's that's cool. Yep, independent Canadian horror from 1981 or whatever. That there would even be Blu-ray. a profit margin on that is pretty incredible. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it was released in honor of Canada Day. <laughs> Considering that that book goes for like $150 on eBay, I would like that ebook. That book goes for $150 on eBay? Yeah, I was shocked. I wanted to read it because I heard it was better than the movie, which I liked, but it's a mess. And I looked it up and like, I can't afford that. Wow. All right, so what are we doing next week? I don't know. I don't know who will be here. I don't know what movie we'll be doing. I don't know a whole lot about what's going on in the future. But we're still, we're still putting out an episode pretty much every week, uh, Fourth of July weekend is the weekend that we're around now, so I don't know if I'll actually put out the episode. Like, when you're listening to this, it'll probably be like a week later than you expected. Sorry about that, but everyone's got stuff they got to do. What you can do to fill your time is you could visit Stitcher or iTunes or SoundCloud or anywhere else where our podcast is located, and you could give us a review and maybe leave a rating, and that might help us out a little bit. The podcast is still getting more subscribers. We're still moving up. It's pretty cool. Uh, A lot of that is thanks to Reddit, but we're still getting more subscribers on the classic podcast platforms, too. So help us out if you care. Now, do you guys get anything else you want to add before we split? Nope. Uh, Well, feedback from you guys is cool. It makes me aroused, so keep it up. (laughs) That's not the only thing that's going to get kept up. Oh, well. What a great way to end it. Adios. Later. Bye. Later days. That's my new one. Okay, so I'll see you later, huh? What the fuck does that even mean? I don't know. I heard it on a cartoon one time. Canadian cartoon. (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm doing it. If it's a Canadian thing, you have to do it.